Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 10 of Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers. Yes, that's right, the big 1-0. I am your host, Robert Scavone Jr., and I am glad you're back for another episode. As you know, twice a month, we meet to cover opinions from the Florida appellate courts. In this episode, we have six opinions to cover, four civil and two criminal. Links to the opinions can be found in the show notes. Remember, folks, I try to cover opinions that have broad impact or changed the legal landscape in some material way. But if you come across a case that you believe is noteworthy and you want me to cover it, please send me your summary to summarilypod at gmail.com and I will try to include it in a future episode. Okay, before we get to the opinions, the disclaimers. Number one, I am not your lawyer. Number two, if you have a legal issue, please call a lawyer. Number three, the following podcast is not legal advice. And number four, this is not an advertisement for legal services. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, with that out of the way, let's get cooking. We start with an opinion from the Florida Supreme Court. It is Dale or Dial, D-A-I-L, versus Calusa Palms Master Association, and it involves the admissibility at trial of past medical expenses paid by Medicare. Dale broke her arm while she was on the property owned by the association. Prior to trial, she moved in limine to include the full amount of the medical bills that were submitted to Medicare, or the full amount of the bills that the doctors actually charged her. The association argued that Dale's evidence as to the medical bills should be limited to the amount Medicaid actually paid the doctors. The trial court denied Dale's motion in limine, and the evidence at trial reflected the amount Medicaid actually paid, not the amount the doctors submitted. Dale was awarded damages and appealed the trial court's denial of her motion in limine. The second DCA affirmed, based on its 2004 opinion in cooperating leasing versus Johnson, where it held that the appropriate measure of compensatory damages for past medical expenses when a plaintiff has received Medicare benefits does not include the difference between the amount that the Medicare provider agreed to accept and the total amount of the plaintiff's medical bills. At the second DCA, Dale argued that Johnson had been quote-unquote implicitly abrogated by the Florida Supreme Court's 2015 opinion in Horge v. State Farm. In Horge, the court held that the trial court properly excluded evidence of the plaintiff's eligibility for future medical benefits from Medicare, Medicaid, and other social legislation as collateral sources. In essence, what the plaintiff is arguing here is that under the collateral source rule, she should have been able to show the jury the full amount her doctors charge Medicaid rather than the amount Medicaid actually paid. From her perspective, she was shortchanged because the jury saw what she collected from a collateral source rather than what her doctors charged for her actual treatment. The second DCA rejected her argument 
and held that Horge applied only to future medical payments. However, the second DCA recognized that the issue of past medical payments in this context comes up frequently and certified the following question of great public importance. Does the holding in Horge prohibiting the introduction of evidence of Medicare benefits in a personal injury case for purposes of a jury's consideration of future medical expenses apply to past medical expenses? The Florida Supreme Court answered that question in the negative and approved the second DCA's opinion in this case. It held that Horge was not applicable to past medical expenses. Our second civil opinion is Martin Memorial Health Systems versus Gorham, which was issued by the 4th DCA on April 20th and involves the distinction between med-mal and ordinary negligence. Gorham's children took her to the hospital because she was ill. Gorham needed a walker, but the hospital would not allow her to bring hers into the hospital. Instead, they told Gorham's family that they would provide a walker for her. The family told the nursing staff that Gorham should not walk without the walker. While admitted, Gorham fell as she was trying to walk to the bathroom. She fractured her pelvis and subsequently died. Gorham's son filed a complaint alleging that the injuries substantially caused her death. The complaint was based on negligent conduct on the part of the nurse attending to Gorham. In particular, it alleged that the hospital breached a duty by failing to provide the walker, failing to put a fall risk wristband on Gorham, failing to put a fall risk sticker in the room, and failing to put a fall risk notation on the board in Gorham's room. The hospital moved to dismiss on the ground that Gorham failed to comply with the pre-suit notice requirements under Florida's MedMal statute. The trial court denied the motion and the hospital petitioned for cert. The 4th DCA granted the petition, quashed the order denying the motion to dismiss, and directed the trial court to enter an order granting the hospital's motion to dismiss. The 4th DCA began by explaining that under Chapter 766, a plaintiff must satisfy certain conditions before filing a MedMal complaint. First, the prospective plaintiff's lawyer must conduct an investigation to determine whether there are grounds for a good faith belief that the caretaker was negligent and that the negligence resulted in the plaintiff's injuries. Next, there must be a written medical expert opinion corroborating the lawyer's conclusions. And lastly, the plaintiff must notify the defendant in writing of his or her intent to file a MedMal complaint. In explaining its reason for quashel, the 4th DCA noted that this case falls into a, quote, gray area between ordinary negligence and medical malpractice. Quoting National Deaf Academy versus Towns, a Florida Supreme Court case from 2018, the 4th DCA noted that whether the kinds of claims presented in these cases sound in ordinary negligence or medical negligence will depend on both the specific circumstances under which the injury occurred 
and the allegations in the pleadings. I'm not sure how very helpful that is. But what is helpful is how the 4th DCA separated the types of cases. On the ordinary negligence side, the cases involved common sense judgments, the actions of non-professional employees, and claims that someone failed to properly maintain the premises. On the medical malpractice side, the cases involved professional judgments regarding medical care or services, which are measured against the relevant standard of care. Here, determining whether the hospital breached its duty, while involving some considerations of common sense, will require an assessment of the professional judgment of the nurse as measured against the standard of nursing care. Therefore, Gorham was required to comply with the pre-suit notice requirements under Chapter 766. Sticking with the MedMal theme, our next civil opinion for this episode is Boyle v. Samotin, which was issued by the Florida Supreme Court on April 21st. As we just discussed, a person seeking to file a MedMal complaint must first notify the potential defendant of his or her intent to sue. Upon receiving notice, the prospective defendant has 90 days to conduct its own investigation and reply to the pre-suit notice. Under one subsection of 766.106, the 90-day period is triggered by the mailing of the pre-suit notice. But under another subsection of the statute, the prospective defendant will be deemed to have rejected the claim unless it replies to the pre-suit notice within 90 days after receipt of the notice. As the court pointed out, these 90-day periods are important because under yet another subsection of 766.106, the statute of limitations is told during this 90-day period. Complicating matters, Florida Rule of Civil Procedure 1.650 which applies to pre-suit notice in MedMal cases, states that the notice sent to and received by the prospective defendant constitutes notice. It also states that notice shall be served on the prospective defendant prior to the expiration of the applicable statute of limitations. Additionally, the rule says that a MedMal complaint may not be filed until 90 days after the pre-suit notice is mailed. So there's some ambiguity here. In this case, Boyle mailed the pre-suit notice before the statute of limitations expired, but Samotin received the notice after the expiration. So the question is, was the statute of limitations told when Boyle mailed the notice? The second DCA in this case, bound by precedent, held that the limitations period is not told until the prospective defendant receives the pre-suit notice, and it affirmed the trial court's order granting summary judgment in favor of Samotin on timeliness grounds, noting conflict with the fourth and fifth DCAs, both of which 
held that mailing of the notice tolls the statute of limitations, the second DCA certified conflict to the Florida Supremes. After outlining the conflicting text we just discussed and reviewing several cases on how to resolve the conflict, the Supreme Court ultimately held that under Section 766.106 and Rule 1.650, it is the timely mailing of the pre-suit notice of intent to litigate, not the receipt of the notice, that begins the tolling of the applicable limitations period for filing a complaint for medical negligence. Our final civil opinions are from companion cases. Adit LLC versus the estate of Carl Ingolia and Newport Ritchie Operating versus the estate of Carl Ingolia. These opinions were issued by the 3rd DCA on April 27th and involve arbitration agreements. The parties entered into a contract which contained an arbitration provision. The estate filed suit against Adit, Newport, and others based on common law torts and a violation of FDUPTA. The defendants moved to compel arbitration pointing to a contract signed by Ingolia's attorney in fact. The trial court found the provisions of the arbitration provision unconscionable, refused to sever those provisions, and denied defendants motion to compel arbitration. The third DCA agreed that certain provisions were procedurally unconscionable. Finding that the contract was one of adhesion, the court noted that the arbitration agreement was located on page 15 of the 23-page agreement, so I guess parties are not required to read the entire contract, and that the arbitration agreement was not set off or made conspicuous in any manner. The court found that Ingolia met his burden of establishing procedural unconscionability. As to substantive unconscionability, the defendants stipulated that certain portions of the agreement should be severed. These included provisions that waived attorney's fees, foreclosed the right to appeal the arbitrator's decision, and limited discovery. The third DCA concluded that the agreement contained provisions that created an uneven playing field, including a term that allowed the defendant to pursue eviction claims in court while requiring the plaintiff to submit to arbitration for all claims. The third DCA held that this provision was quote unquote plainly substantively unconscionable. But, and there is always a but, the third DCA did not toss the entire arbitration agreement. Rather, it held that the offending provisions were severable without disturbing the party's intent to resolve their claims through arbitration. The third DCA reversed the trial court's order denying defendants motion to compel and directed the trial court to enter an order compelling arbitration. Our first criminal opinion is Dean v. State, which was issued by the fourth DCA on April 13th and involves Marcy's Law and a defendant's due process rights. The defendant's accomplice was killed after being struck by a car that was driven 
by the victim of a burglary that the defendant and the accomplice committed. The defendant was convicted of felony murder for his involvement in the case. He had been recently released from prison at the time of the crime and thus qualified to be sentenced as a prisoner releasee reoffender, or what we call PRR. Under the PRR statute, depending on the crime for which the defendant is convicted, the sentence can be up to life in prison. In this case, the conviction for felony murder triggered a life sentence for the defendant, and under the PRR statute, only the state can waive the mandatory portion of a PRR sentence. The defendant raised several issues on appeal, but the fourth DCA wrote about only one. Under Marcy's law, crime victims have certain rights, including the right to be heard and the right to confer with the prosecution about all aspects of the case. In this case, the mother of the defendant's accomplice told the court that she thought the defendant should be sentenced to less than life in prison. Although the state did not list the mother as a victim, it did meet with the mother for several hours to discuss the case, and she was permitted to speak to the court at sentencing. Despite the accomplice's mother's protestations, the court sentenced the defendant to life. Although the state could have waived the application of the PRR statute, it declined to do so, and courts are not permitted to override the state with regard to PRR status unless there is an equal protection concern. The defendant's argument on appeal boils down to this. His right to due process was violated because the state did not waive the PRR life sentence as his accomplice's mother wished. I'm sorry folks, but this is an outrageous claim. So I'm going to get on my soapbox here for a minute or two. First, Marcy's law was not violated in this case. True, the mother was not listed as the accomplice's next of kin, but she in fact met with the prosecutors to discuss how she felt about the case and the possible sentence, and she told the court she believed a life sentence was too harsh. So the state complied with Marcy's law in this case, and the 4th DCA stated as much. Second, a victim's wishes can never carry the day in a contest with prosecutorial discretion. Think of what would happen if this were not the case. The state, in its discretion, may think that the appropriate sentence in a given case is, let's say, three years. Yet a victim may think the defendant deserves 20 years. There is a good reason why we leave sentencing recommendations to the state and sentencing to judges. Victims, often rightly, are pissed and want the max, but neither the state nor the sentencing judge should be bound by a victim's wishes, which can often be driven by irrational considerations and unjust reasons. Third, even if the mother had been ignored by the state and the court at sentencing, it is not at all clear to me how a violation of the mother's rights under Marcy's law implicate the defendant's due process rights, and the court did not flesh this out. In its initial brief in the case, the public defender's office stated that because the state refused to recognize that Ms. Tomlinson was the next of kin of the homicide victim, the accomplice, 
the sentencing did not proceed on all issues bearing on the proper sentence. The public defender's office went on to state that the fact that Mrs. Tomlinson was able to speak to prosecutors was meaningless if they did not consider her a victim under the law. This is an incredible claim, which ignores the facts in this case and puts form over substance. Finally and frustratingly, the 4th DCA did not address whether the defendant had standing to raise the Marcy's Law claim in this case. The state, in its answer brief, spent about four and a half pages arguing why the defendant lacked standing. On the other hand, the public defender's office claimed that the defendant had standing and did so in a single footnote. I really wish the fourth had addressed the standing issue one way or another, and I was not able to determine why it chose not to. I am told that there was oral argument in this case, but I was unable to find the video on the 4th DCA's website. If you find that video or come across anything in the briefs about the standing issue that I've missed, please let me know. Our second and final criminal case takes us to federal land. The opinion is Johnson v. Florida, which was issued on April 28th by the 11th Circuit and involves the Sixth Amendment right to speedy trial. While the opinion is published, it is not groundbreaking but it involves speedy trial in the age of COVID, so I thought I'd talk about it a little bit. Johnson, while being detained pre-trial, filed a demand for speedy trial in state court pursuant to Florida Rule of Criminal Procedure 3.191. The trial court and the DCA denied relief. He then filed another speedy trial demand in state court, and he also sought habeas relief in federal court under section 2241 claiming that delays due to COVID violated his right to speedy trial under the Sixth Amendment. The U.S. District Judge dismissed the petition finding that Johnson failed to exhaust in state court and that younger abstention precluded federal court interference because this was an ongoing state court proceeding. The 11th Circuit granted Johnson a certificate of appealability as to whether the delay due to COVID warranted federal habeas relief under Section 2241. The 11th Circuit concluded that Johnson was not entitled to relief. First, the court held that the district court did not err in concluding that Johnson failed to exhaust in state court. Notably, he did not raise the Sixth Amendment violation in state court. Rather, he only argued a violation of Rule 3.191. And, as the 11th Circuit pointed out, Rule 3.191 is a procedural device which is not of constitutional dimension. Thus, Johnson did not raise the federal constitutional issue in his state court proceedings. The 11th Circuit also rejected Johnson's futility argument. Second, Johnson's petition was barred by younger abstention. If you recall from your days in law school, you will remember from federal courts that younger counsels against federal courts getting involved in ongoing state criminal proceedings. As the 11th Circuit noted, younger established, based on principles of comedy and federalism, that federal courts 
should not interfere with ongoing state court proceedings where the state court conviction and or sentence is not yet final. The court went on to explain that younger abstention is required when one, state proceedings, judicial in nature, are pending. Two, the state proceedings involve important state interests. And three, the state proceedings afford adequate opportunity to raise the constitutional issue. Johnson agreed that the first two prongs had been satisfied, and he also conceded that he was actually seeking discharge and not a speedy trial. Nevertheless, he argued that he did not have an adequate opportunity to raise his Sixth Amendment claim in state court. The Eleventh Circuit wasn't buying it. It noted that the state court promptly decided Johnson's rule-based speedy claim, and the fact that no state court had adjudicated his Sixth Amendment claim was due to his failure to raise it in state court. The Eleventh Circuit ultimately concluded that this was, quote-unquote, a classic case for younger abstention. The court affirmed the district court's dismissal. Well, that wraps up episode 10. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. This podcast is produced by Chris Clark of Pendulum Productions. You can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash Pendulum Productions LLC. I want to thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And remember, case law is one word. Thank you.